0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. During World War II, Allied prisoners of war, they were expected to attempt to escape from German prisons. That was the expectation. If you became a POW, it was believed that your responsibility to your country was to attempt to escape. And the reason was that if they made it home, then they were more hands that could contribute to the war effort and go back and and fight again. But even if they didn't make it back to safety— their departure, their escape still helped the war effort because it occupied large numbers of German police and German soldiers in trying to track them down. And so that was more combatants that were taken away from the fight in order to track down the escaped prisoners of war. Mike Scott was one of 65 British officers who had escaped from a prison in Eichstätt in Bavaria through a tunnel in June of 1943. They had planned a mass breakout in 1942 after two more British officers had arrived, Lieutenant Jock Hamilton and Captain Frank Weldon. They had been involved in an escape from a previous camp at Varberg, and the plan at Eichstadt was to dig a tunnel starting from under a latrine. That's a good place to dig a tunnel, right? And they were to pass under a rocky slope and up into a villager's chicken coop about 30 yards away. Tunneling was very difficult, though, because the ground was very rocky. However, because of the situations, the Germans did not search this area. They did not believe it was possible for tunnels to be made underground. Instead, when uh, they were diverted to other parts of the camp where the escapees were actually taking the soil that they had actually excavated from the tunnel, and so they were using the soil to divert the German uh, guards. The tunnel was completed by May. The breakout took place on the night of the uh, 3rd and 4th of June. By dawn, 65 prisoners of war were out. Traveled either in pairs or in small groups. They headed to neutral Switzerland. Eventually, all of them were recaptured. After two weeks held in detention, all 65 men were transferred to a different prison. Their time on the run, however, occupied over 50,000 German police soldiers home guards, and then Hitler, uh, Hitler's youth, uh, the, the youth organization that was working for the Third Reich. 50,000 of these people for, for nearly a week. It's a remarkable story. You know, in wartime, they're invariably going to be prisoners of war. doesn't matter. Uh, we've experienced that in our own, in our own fights. We've got PO, what are considered POWs in uh, captive, even as Americans. Um, However, those other nations that we've often fought against, those enemy combatants are valued because of the fact that they produce intelligence or even propaganda. One story of a POW was uh, in Vietnam is that he actually cut his scalp so that he would be covered with blood and actually beat himself up with a, with a stool so that the Viet Cong could not use him as, as propaganda. His, his physical appearance was of such that he was useless to them for propaganda. But the stories that are told by those who survived being a prisoner of war are always gut-wrenching and sometimes quite harrowing. In those prison settings, there's invariably heroes who rise to the surface who are able to endure great suffering for the cause of their nation. In fact, in our own country, 13 service members have been awarded the Medal of Honor since the Civil War specifically for actions that were taken while held as POWs in enemy prisons. Last week, the leaders of our mission team, Paul and Silas, they find themselves being incarcerated as of, uh, in, in a way. They are prisoners of war. Now, their captors did not recognize that an active war was taking place. When we read the text of Acts chapter 16, we can see that Paul and Silas are very much prisoners of war. There was a spiritual war that was taking place. The kingdom of God had begun its invasion of Europe. Paul and Silas had unfurled the kingdom flag— in the city of Philippi, with a woman named Lydia and her household. The work these missionaries were doing in bringing the light of Christ into the darkness of this Roman city had landed them in a very dark moment. Beaten, incarcerated, locked in stocks, and bound by chains. It raises a question, what should a Christian do who finds himself or herself in such dire circumstances. You know, when you read the accounts of real-life POWs, you find that, that their days and nights were often spent plotting escapes or working to earn the trust of their captors, strategizing the best ways to survive. I honestly can't imagine what that would be like. To be held captive by the ruthless enemies that we fought as a nation over the last hundred years, whether it was the Nazis of the Third Reich, North Koreans or the Viet Cong, none of these regimes had a reputation for kindness towards their captives. But we see again and again in the scriptures that the enemies of the kingdom of God, they can be just as ruthless to faithful soldiers of the cross. And I suspect that living in our day and time where the the gospel message is becoming less and less tolerable to a watching world, that perhaps the enemies of the cross today have that ruthless blood running through their veins. But this morning, I want us to check in on Paul and Silas as they suffer in the dark, lonely, musty confines of this Philippian jail. If you've got your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 16. This will be our our last time in this very important chapter. We'll be in Acts chapter 16. We'll start in, in verse 25. I would ask you to stand as we read together. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. "'For we are all here.' "'And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, "'and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. "'Then he brought them out and said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' "'And they said, "'Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, "'you and your household.' "'And they spoke the word of the Lord to him "'and to all who were in his house, "'and he took, the same, he took them the same hour of the night, "'washed their wounds,' And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. And then he brought them out into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this encouraging, incredible story from Acts chapter 16 of your work in the midst of a terrible situation. Thank you, Father, for your goodness in trials. May we learn to be faithful as Paul and Silas are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you Could be seated. You know, last week we talked about the the circumstances that Paul and Silas were, were facing, terrible circumstances. Their backs had been torn up by the beating, and in a particularly cruel punishment, their feet were locked in stocks, making it where it was impossible for them to find any sort of comfort, any sort of relief. They were in severe discomfort all night long. On, on top of the physical distress We know what it's like to go through physical suffering, but sometimes that psychological distress is even more difficult. You know, these men had followed the Lord's leadership, clear leadership. They were exactly where God wanted them to be. They had experienced God do incredible work through them and in them. God had blessed their work. They had seen a clear victory over Satan. And all they had to show for it was being imprisoned they were some sort of violent murderers i I look at this and i think man this is this is awful right i mean again i can't even i can i can understand i can read it but i have no idea what this must be like i'd certainly excuse them if they want to have a pity party wouldn't you I mean, they've been beaten, they've been incarcerated, they're sitting there on a cold jail cell, lonely, uh, in the dark. There's nobody that they know. They're in a strange city. I mean, this is terrible. I would appreciate it if they, instead of singing hymns or whatever, that they'd sing that old hee-haw song. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Right? I mean, that... That would be a biblical song here. I mean, we understand that, that heart attitude in this moment. Instead, what we find happening is actually a miracle. You say, yeah, pastor, an earthquake. no, no the earthquake's not the miracle I want to point out. The, the miracle that I want to point out is the fact that in the midst of what we would look at as terrible, awful, unfortunate circumstances, yeah, God sent an earthquake that loosened their chains, but the fact that these men in this moment revealed a heart of worship in the middle of this dark, lonely prison, the miracle was not the earthquake. The miracle is that these men found Jesus in the middle of this place. How's that even possible? In the middle of a lonely, sleepless night, how's it possible to find Jesus in that cold, dark jail cell in the middle of Philippi? I think it needs to be said, we need to hear this. The reality of Jesus far exceeds the reality of our circumstances. The reality of Jesus far exceeds the reality of our circumstances. Listen, Paul and Silas had no reason to expect a miracle that night. Uh, There was no doubt God could do a miracle. God had freed Peter from prison. There was no reason to think that God wouldn't or God couldn't, but there was also no reason for them to expect a miracle because throughout the church's early history, we understand that God had shown that, yes, there were times he delivered people. He rescued Peter. There were times that people were set free from their incarceration. But listen, there were also times that there were leaders in the church who actually suffered and died. Which one do you get? There's no way to know. There's no way to expect. There was no way to to know what was coming. Paul and Silas had no idea what was waiting for them the next day. All they knew was in that moment their feet were in stocks, their backs had been shredded, and all that they had were one another and the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and all they could do in that moment was worship. It's a mind blowing response. Was there a trial waiting for them? Was there a lynch mob? Did that little girl's owners go get all of their friends together with pitchforks and torches and they were going to, you know, kill Paul and Silas when they got out? They had no idea. So what do you do in that moment of great loneliness, that moment of great stress, that moment when all you can see are your circumstances? Paul and Silas worship. They worship. They marvel at God's goodness. They sing, and they celebrate Jesus. You can't help but think about that Old Testament story in Daniel chapter 3. You know this. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those Hebrew young men that had been elevated to a position of prominence there in the Babylonian Empire, they were challenged in their allegiance and Nebuchadnezzar wanted nothing to do with this, and so we're told in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't dare want to negate the importance of outcomes to our situations, but I do want to to make this point that outcomes are ultimately determined by God. These Hebrew men in Daniel knew that their futures were very much in the hands of God. They knew that God could save, but they also knew that God might not save. Yet still they had the confidence that nothing that Nebuchadnezzar could do to them was worse than what God could do for them and Nebuchadnezzar just shows the foolishness of his whole idea. We're told in Daniel there that that he heated the furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated. I've always thought that was funny because a hot furnace is a hot furnace, right? Like, I don't want to be cooked in a hot furnace. I don't want to be cooked in a furnace that's seven times hotter than a hot furnace. Like, either way, I'm ending up cooked. Nebuchadnezzar, I want to heat it seven times hotter But instead of doing more harm to the men, you know what happens when you heated that furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated? Well, somebody might look at a hot furnace and say, oh, those men just survived. But you didn't survive a furnace that was seven times hotter. Instead of Nebuchadnezzar punishing these men, he actually gave glory to God. So that's something Nebuchadnezzar was really good at. Inadvertently giving glory to God. Nobody wants to endure hardship. We certainly don't go looking for it. But... We have to understand the undeniable reality that enduring hardship makes us better if we will face those hardships with our eyes fixed on Jesus. James, Jesus' brother, knew something of hardships. He said in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We know this verse. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. Some of you need to hear this today. Jesus is greater than your trial. Jesus is greater than your circumstances. Jesus is greater than your diagnosis. Jesus is greater than your grief. Jesus is greater than your anger. Jesus is greater than your bitterness. Jesus is greater than your hurt feelings. Jesus is greater than your anxiety. Jesus is greater than your doubts and disbelief. Jesus is greater than your circumstances. Each and every day. The reality of Jesus far exceeds the reality of whatever circumstances you face. This morning, he's asking you to get your eyes off of the chains and the stocks that so powerfully command your attention and look to the God who has all authority and power to deliver you from those chains and to hold you tight. Trusting Jesus does not mean that the pain goes away. But you know what trusting Jesus does? It gives you the liberty to worship in spite of the pain. There's no question in my mind that Paul and Silas were in excruciating agony sitting in that prison floor. Yet they worshiped, yet they praised, yet they loved Jesus in the midst. Faith doesn't always heal the scars from the beating that you took, but it does allow the pain of those scars to add meaning to your worship. The reality of Jesus and the power of the gospel is far greater than the reality of our circumstances. And that leads us to this understanding. We need to have a God-sized perspective on our trials. Because what was going on while Paul and Silas were sitting there in the prison floor and they were suffering, God had an unexpected plan in place to, to deal with Paul and Silas's suffering. Paul and Silas, when that earthquake happened, can you imagine being in that that situation, in that moment, you're sitting in the prison floor. It's you and your buddy. That's all you've got. You don't know who's there. You don't know who's listening. It's you. You're chained up. Your feet are in stocks. Your back is bleeding. And suddenly the place starts to rattle. And suddenly the chains are broken loose. And the stocks are open. And you are free as could be in that moment. Man. I know what your first reaction is because I know what my first reaction is. It ain't to hang out. Like, me and Philippi are gone. I'm not going back to Philippi. I've, I've had my licks there. I'm not going back. I'm getting out of Dodge. Lydia, we'll see you later. We'll write, right? Who could have blamed them if they'd ran? Hook up with Luke and Timothy, get out of town. God freed them. But instead, they did the dumbest thing these two men could have done. They waited. Like, I wonder how that conversation went. Hey, Paul, what do you want to do? I don't know. Maybe you should wait until he comes down and checks on us. Who, the, 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 the warden? Yeah, let's just hang out right here. Hey guys, y'all don't run either. Everybody stay put. Until the warden shows up. They wait. Because God had a plan for their suffering. God had a plan for their trial. They waited. It seems like they knew that a prison break would be bad news for the warden. Because it would have been bad news for the warden. and So they had a gospel focus even in the middle of this terrible situation. So why not allow this suffering to at least pave the way for something more? You see, God always wants to use our trials, our suffering, our circumstances. God always wants to use those things to help us grow. The fact of the matter is, is there are certainly times where God intends to use our trials to help serve others better. I mean, yeah, James tells us that we come out better once we persevere through the trial, and once we persevere, James tells us that it's good for us in our faith to persevere. But there are certainly times where our perseverance and the way we handle our suffering is good for other people as well. I love what happens to this jailer. I mean, I'm a Christian. How do you not love what happens to the jailer? Paul and Silas are a captive in his jail and it is ultimately their captivity that led to his freedom his deliverance you know what happens sometimes pain can give us tunnel vision pain can give us tunnel vision all we can think about is how we're going to endure how we're going to survive how to put one foot in front of the other But a God-sized perspective on our pain asks us to stick our heads up every once in a while and look around and see what exactly God might be up to. Because it turns out that while God was freeing Paul and Silas, it wasn't because he wanted Paul and Silas free. He was freeing Paul and Silas because God has eyes set on that Philippian warden. God was looking for that warden in his household to go join Lydia's church to help bolster that church there in Philippi. The whole time, they're sitting on that cold prison floor with searing pain of the lashings working through their body. God was working on somebody else. (laughs) The earthquake struck. The prisoners were free. The guard rushed in and found that everybody was loose. That's a bad day if you're a warden. And in that moment, the only thing that made sense, the warden took out his sword put it against his gut, and was about to thrust the sword through himself because he had rather go out on his own terms than for his overlords to come in and do it for him. In that moment, it made more sense for him to take his life than to let his superiors get a hold of him. So let's pause. Let's survey the scene. I've got two Jews in a foreign city Who've just been beaten. They've spent the last four to six hours with their feet in stocks, locked in the bowels of, Philipp- of a Philippian prison. I've got a suicidal jailer who is filled with angst to the point that the only solution that makes sense for him is thrusting his sword through his gut. I've got assorted other prisoners who've been locked up for various crimes who are now sitting there free, wondering what in the world is happening. I've got a mess on my hands. What in the world could bring peace and order to this whole mess? I love what Paul says in verse 28. (laughs) Don't harm yourself, because we're all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, the toughest guy in the, in the building, the warden, he falls down before Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? How backwards is that? It ought to be Paul and Silas who are asking the warden, how do we get out of this? How do we survive this? How do we ever see the light of day again? But instead, in God's grace, it's the warden. What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas look at him. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will Be saved. Luke goes on to tell us, Paul and Silas then had the opportunity to go speak these words to the jailer and his whole house. And what a night. I am so exhausted by nine o'clock at night that, that the whole idea of this taking place after my bedtime just blows my mind. But this is midnight. This is in the middle of the night, and there are gospel conversations happening. There's baptisms happening in the middle of the night. Like, can we do this tomorrow? It's bedtime, y'all. That night started as a night of absolute misery. But by dawn, it was a night of complete healing. We're told that Paul and Silas had their wounds tended to. Had their wounds cleaned. They got got a chance to eat. But while Paul and Silas had their wounds cleaned, the jailer and his family had their hearts cleaned. I love what verse 34 said. It says, after Paul and Silas had some food, we're told in verse 34 that the jailer And his house rejoiced. That's an important word. That word is the same word that's used when Mary exclaims after she goes to visit Elizabeth and it's confirmed that the Messiah is in her womb. And she cries out, my soul rejoices in God my Savior. Mary realizes the, the significance of the salvation that's growing within her. It's also what Peter uses in 1 Peter, and he describes it as the appropriate response to salvation. If you're saved, how do you respond? You rejoice, you exult, you praise, you worship. You can't believe the good fortune that has fallen upon you because you have been delivered, you have been rescued, you have been saved. If I'm, Again, I like to imagine how this plays out in Scripture, Like, I guess in another life I want to be a movie director or something because I want to see this come to life. And and I'm thinking, how would I I make this scene come to life? And I imagine that Paul and Silas are sitting there, they're eating some bread, you know, whatever other, I don't know what you've got in the pantry in a Philippian house in the middle of the night, I don't know. But they've got some bread, some flatbread, maybe some, I don't know, maybe some hummus or something, I don't know. But they're eating. They're recovering. They're... Contemplating the significance of what's taken place. And the jailer's watching, he's talking to the families, talking to his wife, he's talking to his kids, trying to understand what's happened. And the jailer sits down at the table with Paul and Silas and he says, Hey, can I ask you guys a question? Can you teach us the songs that we heard you singing earlier? And Paul and Silas kind of grin, and they say, absolutely. And for the rest of the night, Paul and Silas, the jailer and his family, join together in song, in worship, in rejoicing. Paul and Silas started because of suffering. They ended because of healing. And that jailer and his family went from absolute darkness into unspeakable light through the power of the gospel and the testimony of these men. Rejoicing at the goodness of a God who saves, delivers, and heals. Listen to me today, church. That God is the same. He is still the God who saves and delivers and heals he is still the same God who looks at us in our suffering and says consider it pure joy when you face those trials knowing that the outcome of those trials if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus is for your good it is for his glory it is in our best interest to face those trials with joy he is still the God who looks at the person who is trapped in darkness and who says what do I do to be saved believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved You'll be delivered, you'll be rescued, you'll be set in a new pathway in life, and you too can rejoice in the God of your salvation. The next day, Paul and Silas are set free. No consequences. You can read the irony in the text. The magistrates probably realize that they may have overreacted slightly. And they do what the, the typical mea culpa response is. Oh, you're free, go in peace, it's fine. You realize what you put us through? It's not fine, it's not okay. You did this to us and you didn't have to do this to us. Like I'm lawyering up at that point, right? I'm gonna own me some flipping magistrates. Paul and Silas are freed. The implication here is that the suffering could have been avoided. If they just said, hey, let's, let's, let's research this a little more. Let's find some better evidence. Let's investigate with some witnesses. Let's not just listen to the mob. Lord, help us. We don't need to listen to the mob today. God's even able to work good out of that which is unjust. And Paul and Silas are freed. They're on their way out of town, and there's one more stop they've got to make. They stop by the house church of Lydia where the Philippian church started. And we're told that while they met there, the brothers gathered as the church. And what's interesting is that we don't have any record of the brothers. We know Lydia got saved. We're wondering about the slave girl. But we have no record of anybody else getting saved. But guess what's happening? Lydia's telling people, Lydia's talking to people about what's happened, and suddenly the gospel's spreading, not through the power of the, or the work of the missionaries, but the gospel's spreading through the power of the testimony of Lydia and her household and all those. And now suddenly there's a church that's gathering where the next time they meet, Lydia, her household, those that Lydia has pointed to Christ I know they didn't have an altar and I know they didn't have a church like we have. You imagine the next time they gathered. Hey, go see who's at the door. There on the porch. Open the door. And there's a Philippian jailer. A warden. With his family in tow. Saying, is this where I'm supposed to be? And they say, there's no place better for you to be than in this church at this time with these people. Who else was invited? Well, Keep in mind, there's an invasion underway. The kingdom flag has been unfurled. And every day, more conversations were happening, that more and more people were added, and everyone else at this infant church could infect with the gospel. Everyone that was won over by this subtle invasion of the kingdom of God. I remember the first time I went to prison. It was voluntary. (laughs) Some of y'all weren't paying attention. (laughs) the warden of this particular prison and one of his lieutenants were giving me and a couple other pastors a tour of the facility and we got to see it all we got to go back in solitary confinement and see the, the the little four by six or four by eight cell that these guys got to go in when they misbehaved but this prison generally didn't have prison cells like you imagine, like a jail where you know some old hobo sitting there with a aluminum cup rattling on the rail. I mean, the bars. It wasn't that. It was almost like a. It was almost like it had these large rooms that were almost like barracks, uh, and so you had bunk beds stacked up, and, and they could lock them down and things like that, of course. But but I'll never forget that whenever we went into the barrack, uh, the lieutenant would step in first, and he would say, "Warden on the floor." And at first, I was like, what do you say? Then I heard him say it again. He was saying, warden on the floor, like captain on the deck sort of thing on a ship or something, you know, just announcing that there was somebody there who had authority. And what happened when the lieutenant would announce that, all the guys that were in the dorm at that time, they would hop out of bed, and they would stand up at attention. Not like full-blown military attention. I mean, they weren't like, you know, doing, you know, that. But, I mean, they stood up. And I thought, man, that's a pretty tight ship. And I bet these guys drug dealers and thieves and, you know, the list of, of things that these guys were guilty of. Um, I bet they probably didn't like that, having a, this be like boot camp. Several hundred inmates in, in these dormitories. And, and one thing I noticed is as we passed them, the warden was with us. The warden would stop at several of the guys and he would say, Hey, how's, how's Rhonda? Or, or how's Julie? And the warden was able to talk to these guys about their family. And he knew the inmates' wives. Knew the inmates' kids. He knew the inmates' moms. He was able to talk to these guys about situations that were going on outside the prison. But this warden, and I thought, man, he was, he was somebody that commanded respect because he's a prison warden. He had a badge and he could have these guys shipped off. And I realized that they didn't respect him. Because of his authority, they respected him because he respected them and treated them like image bearers that they were. Turns out that the warden was a godly man, loved the Lord, actually loved those inmates and treated them like family. And one thing about the warden I noticed that he wasn't ever afraid to point those guys to Jesus. Some of those guys were in their lowest point. I mean, can you imagine? But in the midst of that darkness, God put somebody right there to help them find Jesus. We're all facing circumstances. Some of our circumstances are perhaps lower than we've ever been before. And while certainly our circumstances aren't much like Paul and Silas's, the truth still remains. The reality of Jesus is greater than whatever circumstance you face. For those guys in the prison, it was pretty dark. But there was somebody there helping them see the truth of Jesus. I wonder today, what would it take for you to become a worshiper in the midst of your trials? Maybe the simple answer is for you to simply raise your head. Look to God's perspective instead of your own. Or it could be that you need to ask the same question this warden asked. Men, what must I do to be saved? And the answer today is as consistent as it has been Since the night that Philippian warden heard it for the first time, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There may be some here today. You're facing things that seem insurmountable. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't have a lot of confidence and faith that Christ is going to go with you through it and it could be the most important question for you today what do i need to do to be saved trust in the lord trust in the lord believe in the lord jesus christ and you'll be saved would you pray with me please God, this fallen world in which we live is so fraught with sin and folly. and We find ourselves so frequently neck deep in a situation that, that we just can't seem to get out of. And Lord, we understand that there, there are some today, even in this place, Right now, more than anything in this world, before they can ever see any way out of their trial, is that they need to look to Jesus. That warden was up against an insurmountable problem, and it seemed really, really easy to end it in a way that would have been terribly unfortunate. But God, in that moment, you saved him. You delivered him, and you healed him. And you used the suffering of somebody else to do it. And so, God, for those here today who are not in Christ, they've never trusted the Lord Jesus to be their Savior, Lord, I pray that right now in this moment that you would reveal yourself to them in such a powerful way that there would be no denying their need today for a Savior and that they would have the courage to talk with me, to talk with one of our staff members, to talk with a trusted Christian brother or sister, and ask the question, what do I do to be saved? The answer is such a precious answer. I believe on Jesus, the perfect Son of God who came to earth, who lived a perfect life, and who died a death on the cross that we were due to for. To, to pay for the forgiveness for our sins. He was placed in a tomb. He rose again on the third day to guarantee our resurrection. He ascended into heaven, and one day he is coming again to make all things new, to believe on that Jesus, to turn from sin and to trust Jesus. Or maybe there's some here today that right now they're, they're facing what seems like insurmountable suffering, hardship that's beyond belief. And I pray, God, that in the midst of this season that you would make them become worshipers. Not because it's easy, not because it's some sort of salve that takes the pain away, But because we understand that you, the Lord Jesus, are so much greater than anything we're up against. We understand, Lord, that even if you don't remove the pain, even if the trial we're facing even leads to death, there is a God in heaven who saves And so, God, in the middle of whatever trial we are facing, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who's greater than anything we can imagine. God, you are good, and your word endures forever. And those things that were true for Paul and Silas are still true for us today. May we cling to those truths and hold fast to your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.